I speak in terms of elements of probable cause. Sure. That's all. I, I present elements of probable cause to a judge and jury, which is what I did in this case. I... It is now 2022. Welcome to the Crime Scene Time Machine. As always, I'm your host, Scott Roeder, and today we have uh, a legendary deep cover agent and currently active expert witness in police procedures. He's the author of New York Times bestseller, Deep Cover and the Big White Lie. His work as a trial consultant and expert witness has brought us together in one of the strangest homicide cases I have ever heard of, not to mention play an active role in. Today's guest, Michael Levine. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you, my old friend, Mr. Levine? Fine, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Good to speak with you. Let's do it. Yeah, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. If I, you know, I've had some pretty big guests recently. I interviewed Dr. Cyril Weck. I interviewed um, Harvard professor Avi Loeb, uh, a journalist, a good friend of mine, uh, Ross Colehart. And you are truly the cleanup player in that lineup of legends in the world of investigations, of justice, of crime, of solving crime. I had the absolute honor, humbled to be play a small role in a in a pretty bizarre murder case. But before we get to that murder case, I want you to dazzle the crime scene time machine listeners out there with uh, a couple of stories so they can get a flavor of the kinds of things that you accomplished in your life that uh, I think really make you stand out from a lot of other people. I know you're a humble guy, but uh, Mike, why don't you give the viewers there a little introduction uh, into some of your biggest hits? Uh, you know, I, I've written books about the really big ones. And one was a New York Times bestseller, Deep Cover, and the, the uh, Big White Lie. Now, Mike, is, why did you call it Deep Cover? And yes. not just Undercover? Yeah, a, a great question. If you watch the news, if you watch police spokesmen and you watch the journalists, and what you hear is they describe undercover work as basically anybody who goes out in a suit uh, with a gun in his pocket. You're undercover, theoretically. Right. Well, well, that's not what I'm talking. In fact, informants now uh, are called, they call themselves undercover agent. Not true. <laughs> what happened that really put the uh, the underlines the difference. I was working in DEA in New York. I had just come back from being uh, in deep cover in South America for several years, and. The New York Times want, sent a journalist to do an article about people who go undercover into different countries with passports and actually live with drug dealers or other criminals, terrorists, and actually different passports. Hey, Mike, hold on for one second. I'll be able sure. to edit this out. But your signal... Hold on, I think, uh, let me make sure. There we go. Your signal was breaking up pretty hard, and, and I missed like a whole sentence. 
So let me let me start it. Well, we had a little bit of technical difficulty there across the the uh, uh, across the interweb. So we're rebooting that right where we got broken off. Michael, you were talking about the true definition of deep cover versus undercover versus what it's like to be an informant or are you just a undercover like as in your cop car is just solid blue as opposed to black and white which which you just described a bunch of cases that i have where the quote-unquote undercover cops in those uh in those nondescript cars uh took down citizens looking like folks when they didn't have to, looking like bums, and they thought they were undercover. And what they succeeded in doing was scaring the crap out of the people they were arresting to the point that the cops felt necessary to kill them. And now I have those cases. And uh, so the difference between undercover and deep cover to me is huge. And it was highlighted it was highlighted at first when I came back from South America uh, after living in deep cover. Deep cover is where you go into another country. You go in, you go into the devil's den and you pretend you are the devil. Now, if there's a flaw in your act, you will die. And some grotesque desks, uh, like Kiki Camarena being tortured to death, uh, a, a white hot uh, rod put in his rectum, right. recording his cries. That's the and, penalty. And, and of course, that's yeah. awful. But you know what that may, Mike, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, yeah. not, to, not to make light of those situations, but those are things that even there's crossover into pop culture. For example, what you just described there reminds me of that scene in Reservoir Dogs where uh, Mr. White is uh, cutting off the ear to the police officer after the jewel heist and the bank robbery in the garage, you know, trying to see if he was the sure. rat. I mean, those are the kinds of things that aren't just in the movies. That's real life that people, they, they you know, they, they risk their lives. If you're going undercover with a drug investigation, that's what you did down in South America. You went under, you were deep cover in the drug trade of one of yes. the most notable periods in American history. Yeah, and into uh, actually, uh, there's testimony before Congress. The first person that I, I hate to use this word, but there's no other word, penetrated him and his organization was Roberto Suarez, and he, in secret system, this testimony before the Kerry Commission, was described by the Medellin cartel money launderer Felix Milian Rodriguez as the biggest drug trafficker who ever lived. Wow. My undercover role, my undercover role, my deep cover role, where I actually dealt with him personally, lived with his organization, traveled different countries with members of his organization. And all that time, my act had to be flawless because I was totally at, at, at their mercy. I mean, Completely. obviously, you're from yeah. New York City. I can hear that. As a matter of fact, every time I talk to Mike Levine, or any time I anticipate I'm going to talk to Mike Levine, I put on my Mike Levine accent a little bit because, you know, the best form of compliment is is copying. And I, I love that. Just remind me of the heyday of New York and what it was. It's a, a little... 
Here's a little vignette for you. <laughs> but one of my first international undercover assignments was in 1971, where I went to Bangkok, Thailand, and was living with drug dealers who, parenthetically, these turned out to be the sources of the drugs being smuggled in uh, the bodies of our dead GIs. Oh, my God. And I'm in Bangkok hanging out with these guys, yeah. walking down the streets, speaking English to somebody, and a guy comes up behind me and says, you from the Bronx. This is Bangkok, the other side of the earth. You from the Bronx. He said, yes, I am. <laughs> what the hell? Didn't make really didn't make a difference. You, to the case. you speak Spanish because you could yes, be deep cover uh, in South America with the Medellin cartel, and you know, personally dealing with Suarez. I mean, did did they think that you were uh, from their country, or did they know that you were an American uh, Spanish speaking person? Like, can you hide a thick Brooklyn accent? Underneath your Spanish. Uh, yeah. I mean, Spanish is Spanish. It's a different language. I speak it fluently. Um, I picked Was up- that a concern of yours? Like when I'm just trying to get into your head, like, okay, if you get busted, they're going to fucking kill you and do it in a ruthless way. If they find you out, you've got to be so confident. So I'm just curious, like, what was your introduction to them? Did they have to know like your history or what was the psychological, how deep did you have to go in, in your personality that you gave to them? Um, because that's like playing poker every yeah. second of the day. Yeah. It, I was fortunate to have grown up in, I guess what they call now, a very ethnically diverse South Bronx. Mm -hmm. All my, all my friends, and when I'm saying starting at age 10 or 11, were Puerto Rican. And I fell in love with the culture. I could speak street Spanglish by the time I was 11 or 12. In fact, I picked up so much of the language that when I went to work for the U.S. government, my first job with Internal Revenue Intelligence Division, they had an organized crime division that needed somebody to work undercover in the uh, street gambling business, that is Bolita. In Bolita, that's, that, that was a very common, it was Spanish numbers is basically what Bolita was. Okay. Uh, I, I was very good at this undercover because I, it was very natural to me. This is the way I used what to was, speak to my friends. Let me ask you this, Mike. What was, sure. how old were you when you were embedded with, this, oh, you know what? Uh, I just I have so fast. Maybe that's a whole nother podcast or we can go down that road. And, but I think from our intro, listen, folks, this guy has been everywhere and done everything. And, and we could do a whole other podcast on, yep. on, on just this subject, actually a series, a, a movie just on this subject. So but I think what we do want to do is shift gears a little bit and talk about a specific case that I had the pleasure of uh, working with, with Mike on. And um, let's set the scene, Mike. Uh, put into the crime scene time machine. Uh, what was the year of the murder on this one? Was it 2012? Uh, I think so. T take a step back, though. I just want to finish your first question. Yeah, and, I know. And that, and that is, that in, I was in New York 
Uh, New York Times wanted somebody who actually did his James Bond stuff. And out of 500 agents and cops in New York City, the only one they could find was me. I actually went into countries, lived with drug dealers, uh, traveled with fake passports. Nobody else in New York, that's how rare truly deep cover is. You know, everybody's undercover. The ASPCA has undercover people. It's <laughs> Right, yeah. So yeah. that's why I differentiated in my book. I called it deep cover because deep cover is something entirely different. And I give the definition in the book, but not important now. Um, I, after all the years with the Department of Justice, by the time I get out, I had become expert in just about every police procedure there is. And that means use of force, use of deadly force, uh, undercover tactics, which really uh, surfaces in a lot of uh, murder cases. When I say murder cases, cases where cops kill people or people kill cops, too, because people kill cops because they confuse them with thugs. Right. When, they, yeah, well, when there's no need, there's just no need for them to be that thug. Yeah. So I'm, the- I'm, I'm literally plagued by this. So... Yes. When I, I, I began working uh, as a trial consultant and an expert witness and testifying in cases, not only all over the country, but all over the world as an expert. And so when this case happened, I was contacted by the attorney uh, and the case was uh, the Dr. Smith case, Dr. Arnold Smith, uh, uh, Mississippi. And Dr. Smith was a cancer doctor who was very, very popular in the Afro-American community. He's a guy that took cases, saved people. And he had a quirk, and that is that he hated his his wife's attorney, Abraham. And uh, that's his last name, Abraham. And, and that's a relatable thing out there. I think out in the universe, if you talk to any man, uh, they probably don't like their wife's lawyer. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's not a good sign if your wife has her own lawyer, huh? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people out there who say, okay, that's a good motive. Let him <laughs> go do it. And well, that, well, Dr. Smith, what he did was he started paying uh, some of his patients who lived in these really bad communities to come up with information about Smith because he, Dr. Smith had heard rumors or had information that Lee Abraham, the, the attorney, was involved in everything from uh, child trafficking to Jamopri. And he wanted proof. So he, he, and not when he wanted proof, he had these clients come in, these patients come in and sit across the desk from him. And he videotaped his interrogation of these people where you could see that Dr. Smith, maybe he'd been a, you know, having a hard time psychologically, but he was vulnerable to this right. kind of. I think, I think, just you know, to kind of orient everybody here, we're in the what is twenty twelve, I think, in yeah. Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, this is the, and we have a lot of international uh, folks out there. So, Jackson, Mississippi, for everybody, is a um, uh, area in the deep, deep south of the United States in a state called Mississippi, which has been plagued in its in its past. And uh, some say it might still be in kind of a um, recovering from the Jim Crow era of uh, slavery and 
poverty and um, uh, and power and wealth and drug addiction and it's and it's a poor, one of the poorest least educated places in all of the United States and might I say possibly even the world so this yes. is the stage of this murder for higher plot in Jackson, Mississippi, Michael Levine, go right ahead. I just wanted to put it into context for some of our international listeners. Yeah, that plays an important role, too, in what is about to transpire. Uh, I don't even know if we'll have time to do this whole complicated. We're going to do some broad strokes. You know, okay. we want to get oh. the tasty bits, the, the, the bits that people really tune in for. And that is what happened, how it happened. What was the big turn in the case, the moment that really, I mean, surprised us both, right? So, so this Dr. Smith, um, he puts out an ad on Craigslist, right, uh, for a hitman to kill uh, it, Lee Abrams. Isn't that right? I, I don't know if he put an ad out, but the way it went down is as follows. Lee Abraham hears that exactly what the doctor is doing, compiling a case against him. And of course, Lee Abraham uh, gets upset, rightfully upset. But how does Lee Abraham react? He, he goes after the doctor. And he comes into contact with a street guy who's a hustler. And the street guy says, oh, yeah, the doctor is plotting to kill you. And whether Lee Abraham paid him or not, no, he didn't pay him at this point. But but this guy, thinking he's working for Lee Abraham or pretending to work for Lee Abraham, continues to talk to the doctor, working up information. In fact, scaring the hell out of the doctors, telling the doctor that Lee Abraham is plotting to kill him. Right. So, so, so it was yeah. my, my, now you got deeper into the particulars on this case because you really commented on the full scope of the investigation. But from the, from the perspective that I handled in collaboration with you was the, the shooting scene. So for a broad strokes was, so we have this doctor who is kind of mentally on the decline, maybe early onset of some kind of dementia, possibly uh, with some very other different. side effects, but a very wealthy man who yeah, very- goes through street people that he's contacted on Craigslist uh, and nefarious things come up about, well, hey, let's take him down and get some money. Uh, and then Lee Abrams, the lawyer, is able to re-manipulate this so-called hitman uh, to intimidate back Dr. Smith. And then ultimately it culminates into what it, I would, I, I call it almost like, it, like, like when you're a hunter and you're drawing in your prey, why don't you set the stage for everybody from a criminal standpoint, what Lee Abraham did or Lee Abrams did um, to invite in these people for this kind of final confrontation. Well, first I got, uh, you know, I speak in terms of elements of probable cause. Sure. That's all. I I present elements of probable cause to a judge and jury, which is what I did in this case. I, I ended up testifying in uh, 
what they what they call a Daubert hearing because I wrote something like a three hundred page report. Yes, I remember the, reading that. <laughs> yes, and the upshot of the of the report was that Lee Abraham, uh, aided by the uh, uh, Attorney General of the state, who was his close friend, uh, basically executed. Um, the uh, the young man who was the street hustler. Now, He's just trying to, yeah. Now, now, this is, I think, an important thing. So we've got these... That's where you came in, by the way. Right, yeah. But we've got these wealthy... We've got this wealthy attorney. We've got this wealthy doctor who's on the decline. Um, hold on. I might have my dogs whining in the background. Uh uh, I'm going to tell my dog to. I'm a dog person. I yeah, right. Well, Dexter has been a part of the podcast on occasion, and he does get especially excited when I talk about murder. Uh, but um, we are on location, actually, on this podcast, coming to you live from Pompano Beach, Florida. Um, currently, uh, currently on location for a crime. Well, I'm on a post crime scene siesta at the moment. Uh, and I, uh, and uh, I'll try not to be too long winded because I know you're going on a siesta uh, yeah. uh, in a bit as well. So back to the story of Dr. Smith and Mr. Attorney Abrams uh, and then caught in the middle are these kind of Craigslist wannabe scoundrels that are two African-American fellows uh, who have, weapons but no ammunition and no, they're no. invited into the law office and then once they get into the law office the the lawyer and not only the lawyer not cops folks attorney generals assistant attorney generals basically Lawyers with guns. Am I right about that, Mike? How to characterize? No, they were, no. These were invest. These were law enforcement officers they, assigned, to the, assigned to the attorney general's office. And pardon me, I just don't recall any mention of Craigslist. Uh, and the only one to show up to, to actually go into um, Lee Abraham's office was the dead person. <laughs> he was it. He had the. He allegedly had the gun. That was going to put Dr. Smith in jail. He claimed that this gun, uh, I I think it was an AR-15, or I I just don't recall right now. It was a modified, it was a weird gun. It had like a, um, um, and we can put it on the byline. We'll we'll find a picture of the gun and we'll put photographs up on crimescenetimemachine.com so that you can see the final animation that was done on this case. Uh, Amazing. You, you You just did the most amazing job because this, as people can start to tell, this was complicated. Well, and it had, it was uh, incredibly complicated from a crime scene state, but let's, I'm, we're still need to paint the picture. So these guys, these two guys, it's not two guys. Uh, well, well, the, the two African-American, three African-American people, the three gentlemen uh, come into Lee Abrams office thinking yeah. they're making a deal with him. Right. And what actually happens is they are shot to death on not, not state. Both. Not both. One, not one, both one survived. One survived. Right. Uh, two. One survived um, the uh, Ty- Tyree. I can't uh, I can't think of his real name right, right. now. But, no. uh, he, name, but Tyree, Tyree was killed instantly. Right. Um, and at the that other point, still alive. But they were set up 
to walk into a shooting. That's the way the probable cause, the elements of probable cause, when you stack them together, uh, they were set up. It's a double and cross. That's what I did in my report. Yeah, they were set up. Whether or not the motive was to kill the uh, Tyree, right. whether it was or not, it's just it's the conjecture that's in my report because immediately after killing the man, uh, Lee Abraham sued Doctor <laughs> Abraham Doctor Doctor right. Smith was arrested for the homicide and he was also sued by Lee Abraham oh my God. for the trauma that uh, he had caused Doc, uh, Lee Abraham in going through this murder, which was a horrific scene. Actually, oh, I mean, think about it. It's almost the 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 most evil double cross in the world right so or, oh my god yeah evil yeah. but i don't want to care but maybe evil but it's a but it's a serious double cross in that so somebody's going to try to maybe uh come get a hit on you you convert the hitmen to convince them to give you those weapons and you're going to pay them so nobody gets hit and then they get killed and then sue dr smith for for me, for, for Lee Abrams killing those guys. Well, not only that, oh, but Dr. God, Smith is, Dr. Smith is charged with homicide, even that's though the crazy. cops killed him. He's, he's charged with homicide. Of, but he never uh, stood trial, though, right? Uh, for homicide, not yet. For the crime. <laughs> not yet. What, what did happen was uh, the, uh, the money trial, the civil trial, was about to take place. And I had this report, you saw the report, and they decided to challenge me with a Daubert hearing, challenge me and my report. So I traveled down to Mississippi, took the witness stand, and this the one of the attorneys, uh, in, Inspector Generals, not Inspector Generals, the attorney, attorney general, assistant attorney generals, proceeded to try and tear me apart on the witness stand. Thereby, I know how you feel. I know huh? how you feel. It, it, yeah. it, it's an interesting thing out there. And, you know, listen, the majority of our clients are not lawyers, okay? Or not clients, mm -hmm. the of our listeners here. Our clients, my clients and your clients are usually all lawyers, but our listeners are not lawyers. Our listeners yeah. are a diverse group of people. And I don't think the average person, not that we're not average people, but I don't think that the, the everyday person that doesn't do expert witness testimony realizes what it's like to get cross-examined on the stand in a, in a homicide investigation or even in a civil case uh, by very talented uh, lawyers opposing you, trying to break you down, talking to you about everything but the evidence and just questioning your character and motives rather than questioning your math. Exactly. Uh, my report my report indicated that the totality of evidence that I reviewed shows a powerful picture of intentional homicide, cover-up, involvement of the uh, attorney general himself, on and on, with my recommendation that this be forwarded to the Federal Bureau of Investigation for criminal investigation. That was my report. Now, it's, that was the end of a 200-plus page report. Uh, so the destruction of me and my report became imperative <laughs> for them, for the other side. So I take the witness stand in uh, Mississippi, and I am on the stand for seven and a half hours. 
this was a record for me. And this is called, for you guys who aren't attorneys, look it up. It's called a Daubert hearing. The Daubert hearing opens the door for them to tear you a butt apart in any way that they can. And the judge is going to give them all the leeway in the world. And he did. And at the end of that, the judge ruled in my favor, in our favor. He said that my report was fine. I was fine. I was. I met all the criteria to be um, a qualified expert witness. And, and that's never in just, I mean, listen, as far as expert witnesses go, uh, Michael Levine is one of the best expert witnesses out there, has testified in federal state court on homicide, civil cases, federal police involved shootings, uh, international investigations. And you yes. know, as have I in, in some capacities, uh, I'm, I'm tailing on your uh I'm on your tail there. I think you got a couple of years uh, head start on me. But yeah, um, well, Scott, that's you know, I, I forget how I found you, but when I saw when they sent me the crime scene photos, they sent me uh, the alleged crime scene investigation of the murder of this 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 uh, kid. Yeah, and first thing I noticed is it doesn't match what the police said they did. Just doesn't match. Not only that. The uh, the forensics indicate that the guy wasn't involved in a shootout. He was shot in the head while he laid on the ground. That's what the forensics indicate. Ergo, that, that it looks was- like a homicide. And then I took all the statements and I realized I needed, I didn't know if I knew your particular talents at the time, but I needed somebody like you. And thank God I found you. Well, uh, and- I mean, you know, listen, Mike, you're being way too kind, but. But, but what people are going to see when they go to Crime Scene Time Machine and look at the Michael Levine um, section on uh, our web on our web uh, website, which is gonna, the companion to the podcast, you're going to see this crazy crime scene of these two gentlemen walking into a door, and then as they walk in, they get shot at from all directions. And I think how many shots were fired? Something like over 14 total shots between four potential shooters. And what my job was with uh, uh, Mike uh, was to reconstruct each bullet trajectory, going through walls, going through plants. One went through an alligator case that was on the wall uh, with a trophy alligator. Uh, There was blood everywhere, shell casings everywhere, four shooters in four separate directions, all pointing in on two people coming through the front door of an exterior facing first level kind of like storefront that you would see on a a walking street in a downtown neighborhood where you just you're on the street downtown you open up the door and you're directly into a room with uh, an attorney's waiting room and with leather couches and terrible looking green carpet and way too many pictures of dogs hunting on horseback on the wall. Uh, (laughs) That kind of a law office smells of rich mahogany and old leather books. Uh, People people in these offices uh, feel uh, like everything they say is a very important statement. (laughs) And uh, uh, so this was basically 
a pigeon shoot. What, what do we call this? What did Dick Cheney do back in the day? They're like when he goes pheasant hunting, uh, you get a bunch of pheasants in a cage and then you throw them down on the ground and then you blast your friend in the face. Uh, that's kind of what this was, where they were inviting these two guys into the law office as as they open the front door to walk into the law office. They're getting shot from every direction. I, yeah. I, and. The police and, one guy lives, and then the when cop he, goes up behind his head, shoots him directly in the back of his head with hat on the top, as, on the yeah, top of his head. Just assassinated him. I, on the top of his head. No charges. Poor man, poor, poor no man's little charges. The, the poor man died trying to crawl out of the, uh, of that office. He died on the doorstep. His right. blood, his brains and blood were all heading in the direction, just trying to escape. And the police claimed that they came in shooting. One trouble with that. Yeah. They covered it up pretty good. I sent uh, my investigator down there to try and just, if you can, go see the actual evidence seized. Go look at it. Count the bullets. See if, uh, and the, the gun that uh, our, our alleged intended assassin was carrying was a nine millimeter. All the, all the bullets fired. All over that office were 40 count, 40 millimeter. Uh, there were everything but nine millimeter. Right. So I sent William Acosta is my investigator. And William Acosta is a courageous guy, has no fear. He goes down there and he manages to get actually in his hand all the bullets seized. I don't know how he did that, but it proved that. The, the guy they killed never fired a shot, never fired a single shot. But they claim they were in a shootout. <laughs> it's like something what? happened. And from <laughs> my recollection, something happened to your investigator while he was doing his investigation. Yes, yes, right? he was. He he was down there. He'd already done the damage, and they arrested him. And <laughs> and that's somebody shot through the lawyer's office as well. And well, he was arrested like through the, our lawyer's office, the lawyer that represented us. Somebody shot yeah. at his office in Jackson, Mississippi, as a I result of that, defending Dr. Smith in the lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I mean, the whole thing. This is, this some, is a, uh, I'm going to put on my best uh, Southern accent. These are <laughs> my stakes, folks. And when you fuck with the wrong people, you're going to get your shit fucked up. And that's what these people are doing. They were fucking up each other's shit hard. And these are the wealthy uh, people uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, who are uh, feuding in this really barbaric way. Wouldn't you say, Mike? Oh, my God, yes. Um, it, there was no law down. There was just no law and order. I, in fact, my wife was saying, they got to hire your bodyguard to go down there and testify. Yeah. Well, you're and a carpet bagger for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah yes come down but, here northerner what are you they, talking but, about where are you from michael levine yeah <laughs> you, don't look like, you, like, you don't look like the guys in these neighborhoods <laughs> yep. um hey listen everybody in jackson mississippi who hears this podcast i want you to know it's out of love that i do that accent and that's why yeah. we post no video on the crime scene time machine podcast because i really need to contort my face to make that voice like i do i gotta tell you i, I actually love those people so I, you know, I, yeah. it's such a joy but that you know that kind of closed community harbors the, the worst kind of violence and corruption that you could imagine because it's so closed 
Yeah, you take I mean, a, a small community. There's a few people that are very wealthy. Most of the people are unfortunately fairly poor. There's not much of a middle class in Jackson, Mississippi. Right. And, um, you know, you either have or you have not. And um, unfortunately, most people have not down there. And that's right. no fault of their own, I think, to a large degree, um, a victim of their circumstances. But of course, everybody has hometown pride. And well, I'm sure there are people from Jackson, Mississippi, that are extremely proud of the heritage yeah. and the history in which that city was based on. Although, I don't know if I would want to be friends with one of those people, but I'm sure they exist. This this <laughs> was, you know, I've, when we're I, talking I, Jackson, Mississippi, Mike. Yeah, Greenville, Mississippi is actually where all this happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, Jackson. Maybe, maybe I should cut that out. I don't know. Can I? Can I be attacked? Can I be canceled for geographic insensitivity? I don't know, but I want to highlight the fact that my I just stand by my report. Yes, of my course. report showed probable cause of. Yes. So that's a, a step back from you did it. No. All I can say is this is what the evidence was. Well, I think what we Probably. did prove beyond any reasonable doubt, the, 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 to a degree, and, and this is me putting on my serious face now talking science for a second, yeah. um, the uh, trajectory analysis uh, from all of the shooters based on where each shooter said they were in their voluntary statement based on the number of projectiles expended from each individual shooter's weapon, which was inventory tracked, uh, uh, and, um, and the ejected shell casings that were available, uh, on the scene, uh, compared with the bullet trajectory, uh, from the muzzle to the target target being the two state, the two individuals standing and then falling and then one of them turning, trying to exit, being shot from high to low, and then from uh, left to right and right to left in certain situations, because it was very difficult because of biomechanics to prove what bullet came from what gun that killed each guy. Interesting uh, point. Interesting yeah, point. Because it's like all four people, in my opinion, can't be uh, exonerated or implicated as shooting the fatal shot because the this was the most crazy crime scene all i could say is that that there were x number of shots coming from four separate locations from four separate people but i can't tell you what any one shot did to any one of the two victims one of whom denies <laughs> one of whom denies lee abraham the lawyer denies having fired a shot well, yeah, missing a bullet from his inventory. That's the problem. And then this was his office. He immediately had the crime scene destroyed. Of course. Well, that's what I, I encounter oftentimes, Mike, even when I'm doing a federal civil rights case, say in Los Angeles or Ventura County, California, uh, where recently I testified on a case where a, uh, a, a, a witness uh, a civilian photographer was stuck in traffic photographing a fatal encounter between Ventura County Sheriff's Department and a um, suicidal man who had crashed his car and yeah. traffic was being held up on both sides of the freeway for 25 miles. This is on the 101, Mike, at four o'clock on a Tuesday. Sure. <laughs> the helicopter who was above was running out of gas. And decided after communication with the radio on the ground said, hey, we're going to dip behind this building. We've only got five minutes left of gas. 
and then the Ventura County Sheriff's Department come in and shoot and kill this guy. And uh, and then they provide one photograph that they say they took from a civilian photographer. Well, yeah, my investigation uncovered an additional 198 photographs that the police did not furnish, which totally implicated them in their uh, use of force excuse, which was a still frame from one image that showed that the guy might have had a weapon in his hand. And then they hid the other 199 images. But it, but if it wasn't for me contacting the photographer directly and getting him to just morally agree to give over those photographs, they would have got away with it. Sure. It happens you all know, the time. It's, yeah, it happens all the time. You could underline that. It happens yeah, all the time. That's the sad thing. You know that's yeah. why I'm never going to yeah, yes, it is. Because I can't be a shill expert witness. And I know you're the same guy because, listen, there's guys out there in the expert business world. I'm not going to name them that only work for the police. And they've never found a bad shooting one day in their life. Like the the one guy, I won't name his name. I'll just say he's from Minnesota, that he's worked on a thousand police shooting cases, never saw a bad shoot. Yeah. Those Those guys live in big estates, you know. Uh, I'm doing this podcast out of my garage. Well, I'll I'll give you a quick excerpt from one of my recent uh, rebuttals to uh, an opposing expert witness report, clarifying that police are clear, they did nothing. And and what I said was very simple. Sure, but this expert decided to ignore the contents of my report. He had no comment. He just concluded that it it uh, what the, it was a reasonable shooting without reflecting on all the evidence that said it wasn't. And that's generally what happens. They'll bring in an expert, he'll write a pro forma report clearing them, and they will not they will not even the more credible the expert witness report against them, the less they'll even mention it or even look at it. And that's that's been my experience. Yeah. It's really up to a it's really up to a judge. Yeah, every time it really comes down to a judge, and you got, as you know, uh, some judges are just pro police. Some are not. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, you know, it, I, I listen. Yeah. Judges are trying to get elected. Yeah. Unless they're a federal judge, and then they feel like they have a moral mandate. Um, you know, because well, this, that goes judges. both ways. By the way, in, yeah. in the latest in the latest political environment, a lot of judges who go against the police uh, just because it's politically better to go yeah. against. Yes, yeah, so well, I'm, I'm not those pro are, anybody. Those are, I'm pro human being, and I'm pro truth. And yes, you sometimes, are. Dr. Henry Lee said this to me: people lie, but the evidence never lies. I and, so uh, agree with that. That's I, what I, it's I, all about, you know. That's that's why when I'm on the stand and they cross me, what well, you do? You uh, uh, represent police, and I'll say lately about. 50, at least 50% of my cases, I represent police. Right. I'm, about, I'm about 60, 40. And, and that's good. Uh, yeah. in all, all of my cases, just as you said, are evidence dependent. If, if the evidence says to me, uh, this is what happened, that's the way I go. Right. I stick to it. My, I, I, my ideology is pro-truth. You know, uh, that's it. Just pro what the truth says, you know. And um, uh, so I think that's a great way. And, you know, other thing about 
pro-truth and we're talking about law enforcement and, and, and i think people are really gonna when you go to the crime scene time machine website and you see this reconstruction you're gonna really understand how amazing this is but before we go i want to share i think a message for everybody out there in law enforcement michael levine uh received an award for heroic duty as uh, as an officer and the and it's touching to me and it makes me so happy to 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 profile you for specifically this thing because i think it was so heroic the heroism of restraint mm-hmm. and compassion and mike can you please i know you know this is about you and this is but i think you're very proud of this and i would love for you to share oh, yes. with everybody out there this story about how compassion and restraint was your most heroic uh, moment in your life as a crime fighter. Well, this, this was one that just happened to be witnessed by a whole load of people. And that's why it became known to my agency. I was with a fellow, I was with ATF at the time, working on the organized crime division, myself and a guy named Ray Boylan. Now, Ray Boylan is important to, to understand that Ray uh, is the author of a book about his own military exploits. It's called West Side Warrior, Ray Boylan. But I didn't know any of this. He was just my partner. We're, we're, we're having to be at Katz's Delicatessen in New York City. It's about two o'clock in the morning. We're taking a break and we are screaming and running and, and the feet pounding on the sidewalk. And the screaming brought us both up and out onto the street on Ludlow Street, which is right next to uh, Delancey Street. And we come out in time to see a man about 50 feet from us hit another man in the head with an axe, then turn and run toward us. And both Ray and I had our guns drawn, aiming, squeezing the trigger slowly, both yelling, stop, 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 or we'll shoot. And the man ran up to, I would say, within 15 feet of us. And I guess got a good look that both guns were pointed at him. He had no idea. I was squeezing the trigger. And so was Ray. Yeah. And he stopped. He squeezing the trigger. And that's the people out there. Like He was manipulating the trigger to the point where he had not all of the pounds per pressure, but it wasn't going to take much for you to finish that shot, right? Yeah, which is basic uh, marksmanship. You squeeze the trigger. It should surprise you when it goes off. Right. And all that and all that was on my mind. I was just squeezing the trigger, maintaining a sight picture in the middle of his his fast approaching chest, and he stopped. And both Ray and I didn't kill him. And either one of you shot that one Yeah, the the owner of Katz's delicatessen, this is the funny part. He, he came out and he says, that is the greatest effing thing I've ever seen. And he writes a letter to the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms Division about us and what he witnessed. And we get an award, Ray and I. Uh, I have this photo. I love it. it uh, Ray and I get, get an award for not resorting to the use of firearms. In other words, you didn't kill the guy. We're going to give you an award. So we got a money award and a U.S. Treasury Special Act Award. Well, many, many years later, in a use of force case, this came up. You know, what did you have? And I, ha- I brought the thing with me on the witness stand, a copy of it, 
And when when I was asked by the defense attorney, I said, "Yeah, I have the letter. I have it right here." And he went white. Uh, it's just kind of an amazing series of events, which is really my life. It's been just an amazing, amazing series. It's a beautiful events. story in yeah. that in that you know in your thir- how many years in law enforcement total, including what you're doing now. Uh, like, no, including what I'm doing now, yeah, including, where, including your expert work and your, your sure. you know, what we do now, our expert work, but on the job, when, you know, 21 to you know, 45, 50 years, you've been in this business Over, more than more than 50 years. I was military police too, so yeah, I had we, a, yeah, I'm you, about your whole, in your 50 years of working in this business of law enforcement and law enforcement review and expert witness and consulting and and, and DEA agents and military police. And, on the job in New York, your greatest moment is not using force. And, but that goes back to the basic principle of law enforcement to protect and to serve. Whereas I feel like the trend, unfortunately, in this country is kind of a paramilitary mentality for our urban police forces. Is that a cultural issue that needs to be changed? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot of things involved. We need to come up with a way of determining whether a person is too susceptible to fear to ever have a gun. If You can't train that out of anybody. If they're just somebody who's fearful and is, let's say, not accustomed to being in urban environments, he's going to be more afraid and more ready. Are you talking to- about irrational fear or real fear? It's about knowing the difference between being scared and being presented with a threat, right? Well, yeah, but what it comes down to for an expert is you look at the specifics of what happened and you I'm say talking about for the shooter himself. Yes, it's that's what I'm talking to, about. Like in your training, in the in his training, it's about are you scared of something and is that fear preventing you from a rational assessment? Yeah, well, let me give you an example of what training is like now. You have PhDs standing in front of groups of police, with no regard to whether they're frightened or what, who they are, pointing empty guns at them and saying, you have one second to fire. You, there's a PhD. This guy's never been on his street, but he's got this down to a science. I think I know who you're talking yeah. about. I, I don't know. I, you know, I've seen, I, <laughs> I see a video guy in Minnesota again, but go ahead. <laughs> you know, you have one second to, f- and, and my first thought is so many people I've known in law enforcement, that's the worst thing to tell them. It's going to make them shoot. Yeah. And, but that's the training right now, as you and I are speaking, that is the training. And what about you know, the training of, um, you know, for example, I just, about edged weapons, right? I, a friend of mine, uh, Melvin Tucker, police policy and procedures expert, um, down. He just recently retired. He's down in Raleigh, North Carolina. Great guy, doing a person. He's like, "Hi, Scott. It's Mel Tucker." <laughs> but he's a yeah. wonderful man. I love you, Mel Tucker. If you hear this podcast, um, um, you know, officers are taught. Mel Tucker told me that in training, he realized. In, he analyzed all police-related injuries and deaths ever tabulated in the history of America, FBI, CIA, yeah. and whatever. And less than 1% out of every 1,000 incidents where a police officer was um, uh, uh, was threatened with an edged weapon, being it a knife or something like that, was yeah. there an, an injury of note 
to the officer. Yet in more than 50% of cases where an officer is threatened at close range with an edged weapon, they shoot and they kill. Yeah. Like the LA Times asked me to write something about use of deadly force. And I just happened to be involved in a case that I wrote about. And it's similar to uh, yours. Right. Where my, my involved a, a little guy, a little guy so drunk he couldn't stand. And he was threatening the police officer allegedly with a flashlight. <laughs> and the guy was about five foot five. Yeah. Uh, it, it, anyway, the cop killed him. And so I wrote about that. And I, well, it goes back into the training. And I think it goes in the, tr- here's the disparity, all right? So yeah. uh, in the training, when you're a cadet and you're going through officer use of deadly force training, they tell you that this person with the knife is going to cut your throat and kill you. And they don't really focus on how do you take the knife out of her hand? They focus on, on these kind of, I think, emasculating techniques. Uh, Like if I'm a cop, right, I got leather gloves on. I see a woman with a knife. Okay. All right. What is my instinct? What's their first instinct? Taser. What's their second instinct? Baton. Third instinct, beanbag shotgun another okay. nine millimeter uh, or how about a how about a ar-14 shot um or a stun grenade <laughs> you know but how about the first one should be all right you're six foot two she's five foot tall she's got a knife how about tackle it out of her hand use some jujitsu well it, all of the above is valid but you've got to measure it against, uh, in, the, in the words of Graham V. Connor, the Supreme right. Court. You have, to look, you have to look at the specifics of what's happening at that moment and what they did. Was it reasonable or right. not? Right. Well, and- Your expertise is invaluable. I mean, you put together what happened in that office in a way that all the words in the world wouldn't do. You, you know, but... All the words. I'd say that's one of my most complicated crime scenes I've ever done. And and um, and uh, I tell you what, this folks. um, By the way, I've I've recommended you on a number of cases, and I I don't know whether they contact you or not. But it's it's, the money always makes a difference. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So, you know, I don't know anyone better at this than you. Well, I appreciate that, Mike. I oftentimes say that I am the best at what I do. But I one think- thing that I know is you are, in fact, the best at what you do. And um, I'm actually going to be um, uh, uh, reading your book. I'm, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to be reading it. And uh, maybe next time we have you back, and we just do a deep dive into the book. And um, and we could talk about some crimes going on in the news and we could tell some more stories. And uh, we might have uh, 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 Mr. Mike Levine uh, co-hosting the Crime Scene Time Machine <laughs> podcast out there. And, uh, you know, because, listen, that's what people want to hear. They want to hear the experience. Lots of a lot of the stories that I tell those guys, tell people, Mike, are like cases that I've personally worked on. And, um, and they're really interesting and, but there's nobody more interesting than you and more likable than you and showed more restraint and compassion on the job as you. And that's the spirit we want to send out there to all the police officers, protect and serve. And, um, yeah, we want you to make it home to your families, but we want you to serve with compassion and restraint. And that's the love 
that uh, you need to give the community and you will get that back times 100. We guarantee it. And um, for Michael Levine, I'm Scott Roeder. This has been Crime Scene Time Machine. And thank you for stopping by. And as always, I love you. Damn it, Crystal.